This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. It's about design, electronics, software, networks, materials, and the horizons of technology, like synthetic biology. For more information on The Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Buddy Machini is CTO of Airware, a company which creates software, hardware, and cloud services for commercial drone operations. Airware's business model is somewhat unique in the drone industry. Instead of making a single, fully integrated drone in the manner of companies like 3D Robotics and DJI, Airware is instead focused on creating a platform that can be used across a lot of different airframes. This allows professional users to pick the right drone for the job, perhaps a multi-copter for inspecting welded joints on radio towers, or a fixed-wing long-range aircraft for surveying crops, and easily have access to their preferred mission parameters and location data in whatever physical realization that they require. Our conversation with Buddy ranged from the differences between Airbus and Boeing cockpits to the challenges of creating software that thinks like pilots. Let's hear what Buddy has to say about the exciting world of self-piloting unmanned vehicles. Tell us what you do. My title is the Chief Technology Officer at Airware, mm-hmm. and we're a company um, making a platform for commercial drones, which is a little bit out there in terms of an idea. Um, but uh, we kind of think about it as the operating system for drones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess a good, I don't know if you want, should I, I don't know if I should just launch into the. Yeah, launch into it go, briefly. Right. Yeah, go well, ahead. The, so the, the big problem right now, you want to use a drone for for something, right? You want to survey a field and uh, maybe you want to make a business out of doing that. So you want to survey farmer's fields. And the farmers wait, 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 sorry. So just, just to, just to go back a second, other yeah. than like making cool videos for YouTube of like flying over the Golden Gate Bridge, what do people actually want to use drones for? Oh, lots of stuff. It's uh, so one way serving farm fields is a great example. You can fly over with a special camera called a multi-spectral camera and get this really accurate index of crop health mm-hmm. um, that that sort of, in, you know, beyond just looking at the actual crop tells you, you know, here, where's my crop need irrigation or, you know, where should I apply, you know, disease prevention measures and things like that. But also lots of other sort of tasks that are either dangerous or costly. Uh, like a cell phone tower inspection is a great example where, mm-hmm. you know, you've got people literally climbing on cell phone towers. It's super dangerous. OSHA recognizes it as, you know, one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Yeah. It's the sort of um, thing that like Russian teenagers make videos about and put on YouTube. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. <laughs> I don't think it's quite that scary uh, or quite that reckless, but, you know, it's a it's a high risk job. And um, you can you could just use a drone for that with a camera on it and, you know, fly around the tower, actually generate a, a much more accurate report of, of mm-hmm. what's on the tower and, and what the condition mm-hmm. is. So things like that where, you know, you maybe didn't didn't think inspecting bridges the same way, um, inspecting all kinds of infrastructure. All, every all, every bit of infrastructure in this country needs to be inspected. And then around the world, um, bridges are mandated to be inspected. Well, you know, oil pipelines, like I want to know if they're going to leak soon, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, drones offer a you know, scalable way to, to go and inspect those types of things and give you the data that you want. And what and what stands in the way of someone, uh, you know, in a commercial or industrial application like this, going out and buying a 3D robotics drone yeah. and uh, flying it along with an RC controller? Yeah. Uh, so you can do that, um, and the and the technology has certainly commoditized that point. Um, the few things that you know will will sort of eventually uh, get in your way is one that every time you want to you know inspect a new type of thing with a new type of sensor, you're going to have to work to incorporate that sensor into, and that usually means actually physically like you know in there integrating mm-hmm. the the sensor wire harnesses and things like that onto an actual airframe yeah that you want to fly somewhere that's yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. and, and airframes are you know usually pretty delicate things you know the, uh-huh. the cg has to be right the weight has to be right that you know a lot has to be right about it in order for it to fly so you have to do that and then you know 
the harder part though is to write the sort of software glue that that connects that sensor to you know to all the other sensors that are on board you know the the to the autopilot you know how can you control it from the ground you know what does the user interface look like um, so that's another example of something that went wrong and then and then if you you know you want to take all that data you want to organize it properly you want to attach it to all the other data in a compatible way you want to make it easy to send that to somewhere where it's going to be analyzed um, that that all becomes you know it, you can do it in a sort of one off way um, it's you know the technology is there. But to, to do it in sort of like an enterprise scale um, type of way is is a is a much more subtle problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, what's the importance of integrating these sort of uh, sensors and onboard features with the operating system of the drone itself? Why not have it sort of uh, you know separately controlled or, or dangling off? Yeah. Well, uh, so it's one of the, the cool things about what we're working on is what and I, I I love nerding out on this kind of technology <laughs> and, and, and we make everything from from Please. The, yeah. the okay, hardware. Yeah, sorry, sorry to finish the what you're working on thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so we, we make the actual hardware that goes onto the drone itself, just like autopilot hardware, um, and may try to make it as compatible as possible with any kinds of sensors. Uh, we then make the software that controls it, flight control software. Uh, we then make the user interface software that the operators use, and then all the way up through the cloud to sort of you know manage and maintain the data. Um, so, so one cool example of, of why that sort of full stack, you know, really actually makes a difference. Um, one of the sort of key like safety features that you'd want your drone to obey is what we call geofence, right? You, you draw mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm. line, you know, that with a with an altitude, you say, drone, don't ever fly outside of this geofence. Um, you can create that in the cloud. You can approve it, whatever approval workflow you want. Mm-hmm. Um, sign it, cryptographically sign it, send it all the way down. Automatically gets to your drone. The drone verifies in hardware that this is a valid geofence and I'm not going to, I'm not going to disobey this geofence. And then you know that the drone will not fly outside of that area that you prescribed a while back. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so that's a, that's an, you know, sort of a, an example of where the end to end solution just is, you know, Right, right, right. If you yeah. want to use a drone in an organization, it's more than just take it out of the flight case and just go see what's up. Like you have to be able to interface with different decision makers and different planning people and need to make sure that like the data about what you're looking at and how you're going to look at it is also secure. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then actually making it easy to use is another mm-hmm. like yeah. really subtle yeah, yeah. art uh, that, yeah. you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out. Um, so and do you guys make, uh, make like the actual airframes and stuff too, or just the control hardware and the software platform? We make anything that is the lowest common denominator technology that any commercial drone application would, would need. And so, so typically the airframes are, are application specific. So you might use a multi-rotor for a vertical inspection, you know, mission, or you might use a fixed wing if you want to inspect a long corridor. So, so we consider the airframe sort of application specific. And and Mm -hmm. so we don't make those, but any, you know, we, we make all the guts, the brains that are inside of there, the, the basic operating software, the configuration software and the, and the cloud software. And you support multi-rotor as well as fixed wing. Yep, that's correct. Any, any kind of multi-rotor that you could ever possibly dream up, uh, we support and, uh, and fixed wing as well, yeah. At what point is a, is a, is a drone with, uh, you know, N rotors something that you can just, um, you know, approach programmatically rather than reconceiving the, the whole way that it works? Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's, the physics of multi-rotors are, are pretty simple, actually, and, and it's just a, it's a point thrust and, and, and it applies a moment, too. Um, so, so modeling in rotors is pretty simple that there's, you know, as, as an engineer, I'd say that, you know, there, there's some designs, you know, some, some, some sort of constraints or, you know, cost functions that you may be optimizing where a lot of rotors is better. So if I wanted to mm-hmm. make the most efficient possible, you know, multi-rotor, I would use a ton of rotors. I would make it look like one enormous rotor. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, if I want to infinite rotors, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, you know, I want to make that, that, that surface as big as possible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but maybe if I wanted to make something that was, uh, 
super light, um, but also very powerful and doesn't have to fly for too long. I'd, I'd use fewer rotors. And this mm -hmm. is like in, in jet engines. There's, you know, uh, an F-16 has a jet engine. doesn't, you know, all of the flow goes through the actual jet engine. But on a 777, you have this big fan that mm -hmm. the jet engine actually powers. It's called a turbofan. Um, and that makes it a lot more efficient. Mm. So yeah. how much how much effort in the operating system goes into sort of uh, uh, making it capable of operating any arbitrary configuration of of drone? Yeah, it's it, it's a again it's a subtle problem because the the more types of things you support, the the more difficult the configuration of that becomes. And configuration is one of the places, especially in, in drones and, and flying things, where if you misconfigure the system, you know, bad you might have a bad day. Um, so you know, if I have eight eight rotors and I only told it that there are seven, or I right, you know, right. I told one this was plugged into this port and not this port. Uh -huh. um, so so you know, thinking about how you can make that configuration workflow as sort of uh, as as dummy proof as possible and yeah, you know yeah. and, and don't you know our, our sort of philosophy we love autonomy uh, you know autonomy is, is our like core goal and not not because humans are you know are uh are bad decision makers but you know uh, because we want predictability less and, predictable decision makers yeah that's right right right, right. they um, get the sign reversed on longitude for instance yeah, <laughs> and yeah, send they, the drone to uh asia <laughs> right right yeah, yeah. yeah um and so you know just thinking through those types of workflows in terms of how what, what is the worst way that someone could really screw this up and mm -hmm, you know and, mm -hmm. and and making sure that doesn't happen so how how much is that informed by um you know traditional aerospace engineering i mean that that that's what a lot of uh, aerospace engineering is about right is is or at least as it, as it applies to sort of the human factors is controlling for poor human decision making and trying sure. to trying to eliminate it right well yeah it's, it's an interesting uh, a, a larger philosophical conversation but this is a, a big difference between airbus aircraft and boeing aircraft oh, yes. um, oh wait the, go into this this is the coolest uh, thing <laughs> well, so, i read all of william langavisha's uh, stuff on this so so i'm, I'm not an expert um, but the in, in general the uh, airbus aircraft are are much more they trust the computer they they don't want the the human is just there to kind of uh, to give it what we call reference inputs, but, you know, to basically maybe point it around. But the computer says, okay, human, I, under I, I hear you. Uh, I might listen to you and I might see, not. See what you're trying to do there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, that's cute. Yeah. You know what you're doing there. Um, but Boeing is a, is a, very, is a, a much more pilot-centric uh, kind of culture. Mm -hmm. and, and so with Boeing, the, the, the pilot generally has more control over what huh. the aircraft does. And they've, they've kind of converged as the, as the years have gone by and yeah, yeah. everything is fly by wire and every, you know, every commercial airliner built today has an autopilot that can take off and land completely autonomously. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you know, that's, these are differing design philosophies and, and each of them actually brings up these interesting, you know, sort of, um, you hear about these interesting incidents that, that are, that are related to either one design philosophy or another. And there's, there's been a couple in the news about Airbus recently, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know, or something goes wrong there's a sensor that you didn't think could fail. Maybe it fails or, mm -hmm. you know, some, you can be in some corner case and now you're in a situation where, well, the pilot's trying to tell it to do the right yeah, thing, yeah, but yeah. you know, but in the, in the, in the, in the, at the very same time, the pilot could be telling it to do the absolute wrong thing. And the computer can say, Hey, you know, right. Right. Let's, uh, let, you know, let, let's not stall the aircraft. Let's, uh, right. Right. What kind of aircraft was it? The one that, um, Captain Sullenberger landed on the on the Hudson in New York. I believe that was an Airbus. Wasn't? Yeah. Didn't that involve some kind of? Uh, I mean, obviously he's he's a very good pilot for doing that. But I, I I vaguely remember hearing from one of my friends who's really into these things that that 
another reason why he's extra badass is because like they had to like anticipate what the controls were going to think that they were trying to do in order to make it guide <laughs> yeah. into the river and so he and the co-pilot had to like you know like like lean on the opposite sides of the sticks mm-hmm. like at the same mm-hmm. time to like make it keep going forward is well, that is that true or is that just an urban legend i, I don't know about that specific case um i, I do know that urban legends are rampant in aviation um <laughs> oh, but yeah, exactly. but but it is true keep that your phones off guys yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a you know as a as someone who you know spent some time researching autonomy it is true that humans can sometimes try to reverse engineer these autonomous systems and because humans really want to be in control um and there, there's lots of examples of where you know humans know what the computer is going to do and you know we'll try to sometimes called command shaping so i'll shape mm. my commands to the computer so that the computer mm-hmm. you know interprets it one way and then does actually what i want right right um so yeah but i don't know about that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's po- very possible well there's yeah i mean i think that was a factor in the the crash of the air france airbus off of brazil yeah right, a couple of years ago um in which there was a just a lot of uh, conflict for lack of a more specific sense of what it was between the pilot and the autopilot and had either of them really prevailed and been in complete control the entire time the disaster might not have happened in particular had the autopilot uh, remained activated but I think they sort of it kept counteracting what the pilot was doing and so they switched off the autopilot. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's so many weird corner cases in aviation. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a, it's just a difficult, yeah. you know, sort of engineering area. And there's the, you know. have, have you read the, the, the articles that William Langevisha has written about airline crashes in Vanity Fair and the Atlantic? No, I know. Like, no, oh God, you have to. Okay. So we'll link to it in the blog post around this uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, and you should go and, and read it. Um, Bill Langevisha is a, is a writer um, kind of like a swashbuckling foreign correspondent kind of writer who, who has um, written a lot about the engineering challenges of aviation as they relate to human factors and kind of, and then drawing out broader observations about how you can create systems that avoid human error. So the first article of his that I read came out a, a few years ago about the value jet crash in 1996, perhaps. Uh, he wrote about it a few years later. And the, that crash uh, was the result of innumerable individual breaches of protocol. So there were oxygen tanks um, in the cargo hold that rubbed up against each other and eventually uh, began to leak and then sparked and caused an explosion in the cargo hold and the plane crashed just a few minutes after taking off. Uh, and what had happened was that, you know, the guy removing the expired oxygen canisters from an old plane marked them expired sorry marked them expended instead of marking them expired (laughs) right so like some some engineer was like okay the form should ask if it's expired or expended clear enough right like if you just read this carefully and check the right thing nothing will go wrong so we checked the wrong thing the box that basically said there's no oxygen in these when in fact um there was oxygen in them they had just reached the end of their certification and had to be removed and and sent somewhere. Uh, So there's this whole box of live oxygen canisters that are labeled not live. And then uh, he drops them off in some maintenance hangar where another person uh, who was trying to be helpful saw that they were like sitting around and was like, oh, this is value jet property. We're supposed to send value jet property to value jet headquarters in Atlanta. Um, And then, you know, basically signed off without reading all of the manifest disclosures where you say if like cargo is dangerous or not. Um, and it basically, it, it went through like many 
failures like this in a row, any one of which could have, you know, prevented the disaster. And, and finally, the co co-pilot whose ultimate authority was required to like put something like this on the plane also just kind of like blindly signed his name on the forms. Uh, and then the whole thing went down. So, so it's like the, these complex systems, um, especially in an environment where like there are practically no aviation accidents anymore. So how do you, how do you improve these processes? Well, and that's, that's a common thread for most aviation incidents is that it's not one event. It's always a chain of events. And you mm-hmm. know, I'm a, I'm a private pilot and I have a weird obsession with NTSB accident reports because oh, they're yeah? so interesting and they're, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, they're yeah. so thorough. Like right, they, right, they right. really is. A, it's a great investigatory yeah, organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's always a chain of events and it uh-huh. always has to do with a human. I mean, obviously, right. right, right? right. Like yeah, the, yeah. The, there's never an event where the plane just, ah, ah, I decide to fail today. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's like at three mile Island, right? Like, I mean, one of the main things that caused that whole situation to precipitate was, was that there was like a, an indicator light on the control panel dashboard that like the operator couldn't see because there was like a piece of paper covering it or something like that. It's like, that's the kind of mistake that yeah. computers just don't right, make. Right. Right. Figuring humans out is actually very difficult. And I did some some research. One of my projects um, at MIT was uh, the Office of Naval Research is interested in you know starting to automate aircraft carrier deck operations. And, and the way they do this right now, they have what's called a Ouija board, and it's essentially uh-huh. it's like a like a little chessboard where uh-huh. they where you know if an aircraft moves somewhere, they'll move the the piece on the Ouija board manually. You know, and so they, they want to just you know bring in they some have technology. Like long rods to push yeah. them around. They with. do. It's, it, it's, While it's sipping like, tea. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Strangelove kind of yeah, thing. Because it works for them, right? And they, and uh-huh. they know exactly how uh-huh. it works. But so so we want to you know try to try to automate this. And there's you know one one key decision maker on the aircraft carrier called the the air boss. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so my my project in particular was to you know. Well, we want to present the Airboss with an alternative plan from the computer. So, you know, uh-huh. hey, hey, Airboss, like, here's a plan. You know, you can do this, 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 and this, and it will achieve the same objective. But they won't trust the computer unless the computer gives them plans that they themselves may, you know, may actually hmm. may have come up with. Um, and so, so this becomes a, a process in learning how the Airboss makes decisions. And and it's a it's a it's a really huge field of research. But it, yeah, I, yeah. I can say from personal experience that that humans are extremely difficult to model and to you know <laughs> yeah. mathematically and figure out how they're going to make a decision in a certain situation right, right. Um, and, there, and there's lots of different ways you can try to approach the problem but you know um it, it's hard right right yeah. well so just to just to kind of change this like subject just a little bit what do you think about um you know speaking of safety and drones and everything i mean i think in a in a farm field it's one thing if the drone has a malfunction and like hits something and falls out of the sky but i mean you know there's also been a lot of talk about Amazon delivering mm. packages by drones or like, you know, I had some friends who were joking around about starting a startup called Taco Copter and yeah. they decided to not do it because of safety issues. Star like, drones, right? What'd you say? Star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, yeah. was that the real reason that she decided not to do it with safety issues? Yeah, they said they got they said that they got into it. I was actually talking. So they were the, like, the, the, the okay, we're, we're that, all set to do this. Yeah, like uh, I was, my misgiving is is the safety well, issue. Well, no, no, like it was like um, I actually talked to. Um, the other guy who was working on it, I haven't talked to Star about it directly, but what he was telling me was that, um, was that like when the, they were actually starting to work on it and stuff. And when they got the, they just couldn't get the lawyers to be okay with, with it. And then, and then he was like, yeah, and I'm always one of the people who's, you know, let's just do it. Cause it'll be fun. But like, those things are freaking dangerous. Like I have yeah. like scars on my arms from them, you know, just if you hit the propeller the wrong way, like, it's just not what you want to have around drunk people on a Saturday night. It's like handling snakes. Yeah. <laughs> Flying, scars on your arms flying snakes <laughs> they're dangerous i mean people yeah. lost fingers like that oh, I, bet. I mean some some pretty you know bad stuff can happen yeah but, so like how do you think i mean obviously I, I think at some point in the future we're going to have automatically flying robots like bringing us things throughout the day but like what do you think 
you know, how, how are we looking at that problem? Well, well, first I'll say that that's a really hard problem. So, I mean, I, and I remember the neighborhood I grew up, pretty typical of, you know, somewhere where people would deliver packages. You look outside, I see trees, I see power lines, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, sometimes it's raining, sometimes there's fog, there's cars driving around, there's kids playing, you know, there's construction happening, like the world is changing, you know, that it's for a robot, this is like a very inhospitable environment to operate yeah. in. Um, and it's, you know, it's possible to, but the, I think that the way that it, that I sort of think about the problem is that there's lots of things we can do if we're talking about sort of flying robots and drones that, you know, there's lots of things that we can do with drones today that don't require all of that, you know, really sophisticated, yeah. robust technology. So, you know, as I mentioned, like surveying fields, like right, we can fly over right, field right. And, and there's, there's actually a ton of applications that haven't been addressed, even with that simple, you know, sort of use case. Um, and I, I mean, I, I admire the sort of, you know, the forward thinking of, of, you know, companies like Amazon who, you know, don't, are not drone experts, right? I mean, they're, mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. they're a book, a bookseller, right? But they, they, they're thinking forward to, you know, how can we use yeah. exciting technology to, to do new things? They're, they're a logistics expert. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, that's that, that these, yeah, I guess these days yeah, that's yeah. what they, you know, that's their, <laughs> yeah. that's their specialty, but you know, so, so I admire that, but you know, they're as a, as a technologist, I, I like to think, you know, what, what is in front of us now? Like, what can we do? Um, and, and have we addressed all those applications? And then once we have, you know, let's, let's start to think about how we can push the technology. And, and I mean, I think most of the, most of the sort of sensing, you know, sense and avoid technology, the, the robot localization from vision and, you know, and, and algorithms for mapping and, and navigation, those all exist in the, in the mm-hmm. research community. And, and if you put all those together and, you know, in the right way, I think you could have a system that could, you know, could fly around a city with a reasonable amount of robustness. Um, but the, the problem with, you know, research algorithms and just applying them to commercial use cases is that in, in the commercial use case, it needs to work every single time. I mean, this mm-hmm, is, this is mm-hmm. why the autonomous car is going to have, you know, some trouble sort of who, who's going to buy an autonomous car. The first if, time that there's a crash in an autonomous car, it's going to get real hard. It, it is. Yeah. And, and when we have the first time someone dies and despite yeah, the fact yeah, that, yeah. you know, thousands of people are, you yeah. know, are dying each week but from it's, it's right, right, right. going to happen. Sure. And, and the same thing with drones and, you know, so, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I think the, I, I love, I mean, I love technological problems and I, and I think that the sort of package delivery problem represents an interesting one. Uh, but it, I think it will be, you know, a little bit until that, that technology is robust enough so that, you, you know, yeah. commercial com- you know, companies can start using this and actually relying on it. I kind of imagine drones right now as kind of being at the beginning of, of going up the slope of enlightenment on the hype cycle. Because like, at least for me, it's like, peak of inflated expectations. It's like, holy goodness, we've got drones and we flying everything and we're delivering everything. <laughs> then found out we can't have taco copter. And that was like <laughs> the trough of disillusionment because it's like, that's like the most obvious thing you get excited about when you think about drones. But like now it's like, okay, well, how are we actually going to make this real? You know, like, okay, well, let's yeah. start by doing observations of towers and like helping farmers yeah. to look at fields and stuff. And like, you know, got to have to like slowly actually develop all that stuff, all the, that we got excited about over the past. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's a great insight. And then the, the, the sort of commercial drone space and the commercial drone is just a word that was, you know, invented the, you uh-huh. know, last uh-huh. year, maybe. <laughs> and, and now there, there's all these companies in the space. And I think that's a big factor, which is, you know, there's there's a lot of excitement. And I think we, yeah, we'll start to see things temper down a little bit and you know, yeah. figure out how we can actually use these to, you know, and, and to get to get people to trust them. And that's the that's the other, you know, sort of big thing that's standing in the way. The word drone has only become acceptable in like the in the last year or so. I mean, drone used to be associated with Afghanistan and you know, right, and right, drones. yeah. Um, and and now you know, drones are cool. Like now, you now, know. now drones are quadcopters. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, uh, but you know, and so that are manually operated. <laughs> yeah, and and so there's there's a ton of excitement right now. But um, I think you know, we we need to 
make them do things that, that genuinely improve our lives and yeah. our world. And, and I think that's going to get people to, to maybe accept them into their, into their lives a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. more um, than they currently do. Yeah. I sometimes think the the delivery by drone stuff is going to be the, um, you know, the, the internet connected refrigerator of drones, you know, which, which is to say that the thing which preoccupies the media and um, captures everyone's imagination. Yeah. yeah. And, and people will attack it first and it will totally disappoint everyone. Yeah. And then everyone will become disillusioned and go like, Oh my God, what, well, what I, the hell is this? I call this the, the flying car syndrome, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. We, yeah. In the fifth, we've got cars, we've got planes, like, Come on, guys! Like well, this is this is easy. This is a natural here. fit, yeah. and, and you know that that just that still has not materialized because that's yeah, a, yeah. that's a difficult problem. Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah. It's like, but we have, you know, we have Boeing jets, which is like a flying bus. Like, like, what do people want? Do people actually, in order to satisfy their desire for a flying car, like, must it be driving and then take off? while driving on a road is that the definition of a flying car because i think we have a lot of tech that is like functionally functionally similar to a flying car I, I think it's like point to point just on demand transport yeah like all the yeah, all yeah. the sort of you know commercial airlines is very regimented mm-hmm. you know a lot of yeah. procedure and mm-hmm. you know a lot of training mm-hmm. for for yeah. good reason and i think people just want to i want to hop in my flying car and you and know go to tahoe and vertically yeah, yeah, take yeah. Off, 20 minutes vertically take off in the backyard and then go over there and what yeah. kind of what kind of plane do you fly uh well i, I learned on a piper warrior so mm-hmm. a little little two wing you know obviously two wing, two wing right <laughs> two wing <laughs> low wing uh <laughs> you know single engine plane four seater Okay. Um, and it's a, it's just, it's a trainer aircraft and uh-huh. retractable landing gear or no, no, okay. not, not complex. So okay. it's uh, okay. just a, a basic learner. And one uh, of the, one of these like very light aluminum ones where you like push up on the wing and the, and it starts fabric. like tip yeah. over. And, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. homemade ones. The, yeah, those yeah, are yeah. cool. I've always, I've meant to do that, but probably decided it's for the better that I don't do it. Yeah, so it seems like a, a time sink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to build and then the people I know who do that have been working on it for like 20 years. And, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And it's, you know, like still in the garage. Staggering and, out and blinking in the sunlight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so this, this issue of kind of the, the heavy uh, overhead of, of becoming a, a commercial pilot is exactly where, where drones have so much promise, right? You have a, a single, um, machine which contains in its operating system tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of hours of, of operating time, right? And it and it learns from that. It yeah, I mean it it can. I think there's uh, it, at the at the base of it. I mean autopilots have been around for a long time, and you know computers have been flying aircraft for you know for at least thirty years now. I mean a, a computer took us to the moon, right? I mean that's the uh-huh. we, uh-huh. we've been there for a while. Um, and and now that the technology is commoditized to a point where you know I can I can go on Sparkphone and you know buy an IMU a nine DOF IMU for yeah, you yeah. know for twenty bucks and and a and an Arduino and you know write some code yeah, um, yeah. and you know you can it's not awfully hard to you know to get one of these things to fly so like what um, are the what are the exciting problems in in autopilot research right now then if if we've been to the moon with one already like what what are people working on like right now yeah a lot a lot of it is in perception so the uh, right now um, a lot of well, just about all the all the autopods that you've seen in order to localize themselves, they need GPS. And, and GPS is this extremely fragile thing. It's actually owned by the, you know, uh, by the government and they uh-huh. can turn it off at any time, which is uh-huh. a little bit scary. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's very fragile. If I fly under a tree or even near a building, I'll start to get multipath and, and, and things will break easily. And, and if you're, you know, and you can imagine if you were flying and you just and you closed your eyes and you had no idea where you were, this would be a very difficult problem. Uh, and so robotics research has been working for, for a while now and um on using either you know vision based or laser based or you know sonar based um, sensors that will enable the robot to localize itself um, without this this really convenient global positioning system, 
Um, and so there, there's lots of really interesting research on, uh, you know, single camera based, you know, video camera based visual odometry. So you just, you, the cameras, you know, just is, is attached to the drone. And as the camera's moving, it's tracing, you know, essentially, you know, doing odometry on, you know, following where I am, you know, where I was and then, yeah, yeah. you know, integrating how I'm moving. Based and, on how the image is moving. Yeah, so you don't yeah. even need, you don't even need a stereoscopic camera then to model the environment around you because you're always getting sort of a parallax effect yeah, from just right. the movement of yeah, the Yeah, you can get craft. structure from motion. Um, and the, the, the trick with these algorithms has always been, you know, extracting features quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so, I mean, OpenCV is an awesome library that everyone should play around with. We have a book um, on it, in fact. Oh. We'll link to that in the podcast. All of the feature detection algorithms are all in OpenCV. I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they're already mm -hmm. there, but the, the problem becomes, you know, running those quickly enough and robustly enough um, on a on an embedded computer that needs to be on an air, aircraft um, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to do sort of high fidelity uh, localization. So a lot of research is going into that. Um, a lot of a lot of research. There's the, you've probably heard of SLAM, which is simultaneous, simultaneous. localization and mapping. Um, so you know, figuring out ways to to take the localization and also sort of the sensor data that you're getting along the way, you kind of paste it up into this map your your uh, your your belief of what the world looks uh -huh. like. Um, and and there's a, a you know a lot of research in terms of how do you represent that map in a way that's you know sort of storage efficient. If I walk around the the sort of block and I and I get back to a place that I've already known, how do I? It's called loop closure. How do I how uh -huh. do I close the uh -huh. loop and recognize that I'm in the same place and, and sort of correct for any of the inaccuracies that I've you know accrued along the way. Um, so, you know, localization and mapping are two sort of hot areas right now in, uh, in robotics and drone research. Yeah, yeah. And all of that is is strictly a software problem, right? It's uh, it's some hardware, too, in there. Really? Um, yeah, I think the figuring out, um, and this is kind of a, a cool area of research, figuring out how to, and GPUs are a great example of, you know, how do I take the computing hardware that I have and run the algorithms that I want to run in a way that's much, much faster. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so in that respect, there's still some sort of hardware constraints. Well, it's kind of like, where does the software end and the hardware start? Yeah. And, and how can I use hardware to just accelerate what I, what I'm already doing in right, software? Right. So yeah. sending the computation to the right part of the hardware, yeah, but it's true. still generic hardware, right? Yeah. And, and well, uh, and, but now we're seeing, you know, mobile phone companies and, and Google and if you've heard of Project Tango. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah so, they were so, a solid last year, in fact. Yeah. So, so they're using, you know, they're working with the mobile phone manufacturer, the actual processor manufacturers, the Snapdragons and NVIDIAs, um, to, to really accelerate, you know, very, very specific parts of those algorithms using hard, you know, the hardware that's already built into the chip. Huh. And so they can do, they can do slam, they can do amazing things with just a mobile phone processor. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and, and is it because that they've got like parallel computation built into it? It's, it, I think it's, you know, they, they, ha they already have a lot of very specific sort of, you know, circuits in there for doing things like video compression, you know, for, you know, for, so that you take your camera and you compress your video. That's all in hardware these days. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's about sort of, mm -hmm. you know, if they can do that in hardware, then, you know, there's these very specific things that I need to do. I need to do feature detection on every single video frame. So yeah, yeah. can I accelerate that in hardware? And they're working directly with the processor yeah, yeah. makers to, to sort of make that happen. So to what degree is the hardware that you guys are using commodity hardware? We, you mentioned I mean, going on SparkFun to like <laughs> experiment with this stuff. Well, the, I mean the 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 I mean we use MEMS sensors, so uh -huh. um, microelectromechanical, and, and that's the, those are the sensors that have you know been around for about ten years now, um, and are I mean by by all standards not very good. I mean yeah, they're yeah. they're really yeah. noisy. They have you know temperature, but they're super cheap from they're, mobile phones. They're right? cheap and they're and they're repeatable. So you can you know you can do a lot of work to sort of calibrate that you know that nastiness out of the sensor. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean everything that we're using is you know we're a small company. We're you know an eighty person startup in you know down the street in Soma, and so we, we don't have access. We don't have inroads to these you know huge companies right, right, that right. are going to give us really proprietary hardware. Um, we we have to make do with it with exactly what you know hobbyists have to make do with and mm -hmm. you know 
Um, and so, wait, did you say eight people or eighty people? Eighty. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Um, so, so all the technology that we use right now is commoditized. I think a lot of the a lot of the sort of special sauce though is in the design, how you put that together, how do you make it really testable, really robust, um, and that's you know that's where sort of the experience comes in. You've been at Boeing. Right. Yeah. I, so I interned at Boeing. You interned at Boeing. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, and, and, uh, Airware came out of Lemnos Labs, right? Uh, we, we were part of Lemnos Labs of sort Lemnos. Of right around the same time as we we're doing Y Combinator. Um, okay. Okay. But, but I'd say a lot of the core group, um, did, did come from, you know, one, one particular Boeing concept exploration okay. project. Okay. So um, the, yeah, I've, I've actually been meaning to get in touch with you guys for a while. Cause a couple of years ago I was talking with uh, Jeremy Conrad at Lemnos mm-hmm. and he was like, yeah, one of the groups that's here is a bunch of guys who are, who have been at Boeing and now they have a startup around yeah. drones. I was like, what? Yeah. I've never heard of this before. You know, um, we're used to, uh, in Silicon Valley and sort of the software community, people move all the time. The skills are very transportable. If you are, you know, incredible at writing, um, you know, C, you can also probably become pretty incredible at, at, um, writing go or something. Uh, it, it hasn't seemed that way in more of the physical engineering fields. And as much as Detroit would like to have this happen, you know, you haven't had a lot of um, people with a cool idea leave GM and like start a new startup. Sure. Or for that matter, a lot of people leave Boeing and start a cool startup. Yeah. So what what is that? What's that like? What's that process like? Well, I mean, Boeing, you know, now oh, what do I start? The, uh, so, so, you know, Boeing working on a lot of really cool projects and, and the project that, that, you know, the sort of core group at Airware was working on at Boeing, um, was this, uh, 2000 pound unmanned helicopter called the A160. Whoa. Um, and that's a, you know, this is all, a military helicopter. Uh, it was, yeah, it's uh, funded by the department of defense, big companies like Boeing. They, I kind of think of it as a, an evolutionary kind of perspective where the Boeing is in an environment you know, this, this big sort of, you know, huge defense contract environment mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, has these very specific, you know, properties that you get a lot of money, you get a big time scale. The Department of Defense knows exactly what they want to the T. Like uh-huh, they, they uh-huh. write specification documents that are thousands of pages long. They know what, yeah, exactly yeah, what yeah, they yeah. want. And so, you know, Boeing sort of has, has thrived in that environment. And as a, as a result, they've sort of adapted and, and kind of grown into, you know, a company that has lots of things that you need to thrive in that environment. A, yeah, lot, yeah. a lot of infrastructure, you know, a huge, huge team, like, you know, a lot of process a lot of you know you know formal quality control things like that and and you know the technology is the same but the the environment is just is different and yeah, so yeah. then you know in the in the commercial I mean you I mean, think of a commercial customer the, the first big thing is that the commercial customers typically don't know what they want right that's right, the, right. the first like big difference less and, you know, fuel <laughs> more people they, less I mean, labor they, they want to yeah. make money right so yeah, i mean yeah. they and that's you know there's lots of ways to do that and so yeah. the the, the Hello, requirements i'd like to build an airplane please can yeah. you help me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so the, but the equation is pretty well yeah. pretty well specified yeah the right? technology is yeah. the same but the you know that the the environment is just vastly different you know that you don't know the requirements very well and you, you have to you have to sort of tell the customer what they want and you know mm-hmm. guess those you don't have you know while you don't have the the resources of a huge company like Boeing, you also you know have much more agility. So mm-hmm. you know if we mm-hmm. if we decide to do something one way, we can prototype that in a tenth of the time that it you know would have taken to organize a large team and do all the planning. But that's um, only because you're living in 2015. I would say in like 1995, that would probably be a lot harder because you probably wouldn't have access to desktop 3D printer or you know Spark Fun. I think or I think, something like that. Like it seems like at least why. My experience of when I 
was in engineering was like kind of like until fairly recently was like if you want to do some kind of hardware especially big hardware you you can't not work in a big organization because you just don't have the people and you don't have the resources and you don't have the tools and everything sure and i think i mean a lot of us though i mean we were we were building you know sort of you know autopilots and aerobotics you know 10 years ago and you know mm -hmm. before it had all necessarily commoditized um but i think you know the timing's definitely right i mean maybe you know in the late 90s the, the timing was right for google they had all that they mm -hmm. needed right to you know to really build out an, an amazing product and i mean the same is true i think for us and um but but at the same time a lot of it is the, the sort of expertise and, and you know you'd I think what we've tried to do is pull all of the great practices and, you know, a lot of the sort of discipline that, you know, that, that a large company like Boeing sort of instills, um, but, you know, bring it to a, a, just a different environment, a different market where mm -hmm. being agile is actually a big advantage um, and where, you know, we can be a little bit more creative about our, our solution approach to, to problems. I assume that Boeing isn't going on, on SparkFun for this kind of thing, right? Well, as a, as a result of, you know, being in the environment that they've been in for so long, it's very, very difficult for large companies to pivot. And yeah, I mean, this yeah. has been true of, you know, the, the auto industry is a great, a great example mm -hmm, of where mm -hmm. there's, there's so much inertia and, and it, you know, it becomes this big train that is yeah, very yeah, yeah. difficult to, you know, to take onto a different course. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's a, I, I see that actually as a, as a bigger challenge than the challenge uh -huh. of sort of starting new, um, you know, with less resources, sure, um, sure. but, but a really well-defined vision and, right, you know, right. and the agility to sort of, you know, pivot on that vision. Yeah. Just being constrained by old processes. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's a, that, that inertia is very, very difficult to, yeah. you know, to sort of handle. And I think the, the large aerospace, that's why, I mean, if, you know, we talk about, you know, who I won't say specifically who we think, you know, who are our competitors, but, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. I, I can say that the large aerospace companies are not very well positioned to, you know, to, to service the, the sort of emerging commercial right, market. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, They're so risk averse. I mean, they have so much to lose. Uh, that, that same, that one, uh, that one catastrophic uh, crash that kills someone for a startup is a matter of declaring bankruptcy and reconstituting with the same team and then going on with what you're doing. Uh, if you're Boeing, that is uh, billions of dollars of shareholder yeah. value. And um, yeah. another, another cool thing, and this is, we actually started the company in Newport Beach in Southern California huh. and, and moved up here to, to San Francisco. And it, as we, you know, as we had the aerospace expertise as sort of our core, we started to build out, you know, just more general software yeah. and all of the young, ambitious software developers, you know, who are startup yeah, yeah, minded yeah. are all in San Francisco. Yeah. That's the other cool part about um, you know, advantage of, I think, working at a small company and, you know, in a sort of exciting, you know, yeah. tech companies that you can attract the really, yeah. you know, the brightest talent, um, to, to work on a cool problem that's yeah. going to challenge them. Were you hiring like, you know, hardcore long time, like aerospace engineering guys or no, no, okay. the, no, I mean, we, you know, um, sort of, you know, picked and choose from the, you know, the, who, you know, the, the team that, that mm -hmm. we wanted. And I think the, I mean, an important part of every startup is, you know, are, are, are you hungry, right? To, are yeah, you, yeah. Do, you, do you really want to you know, make this the, the achievement, you know, mm -hmm. of your life? And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's that one of the things that, you know, we're kind of looking for. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, not, nothing against, uh, you know, aerospace engineers, yeah, but, yeah. you know, and a large part of it was we had sort of already had that, you know, core expertise from, yeah, yeah, from yeah. our, you know, our sort of close colleagues. Um, and you know, wanted to, and wanted to find people who are good at the stuff that we're not good at. And, right, you know, right, so I, right. I don't know how the cloud works, right? I don't yeah. you know. There's too many acronyms and too many cute, you know, uh -huh, names uh -huh. for everything. But you don't um, have to know how the cloud works these days, right? Yeah. To use the cloud. That's, that's the, it's become so abstracted and modularized. I guess you have to know how, what the cloud is, but like, yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of how far you have to get. And then, yeah, I always say like, I'm a robotics guy and you know, if I did, you know, I've, tried to, you know, sometimes we're, you know, at a startup, you have to do all the jobs and, you know, have to sometimes hire for a cloud, you know, software engineer. Yeah, and yeah. it's, it is a, 
it's confusing. Like there's, there's a lot of words out there that, you know, <laughs> implementers of the cloud. Yeah. yeah. And it moves so fast. That's the other thing. Right. The, right. You know, technologies are in vogue one day and like the next week it's something completely different. Oh, totally. Ask, ask, ask anyone who programs in Java, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they're like trying to, trying to go to, go to hacker school and learn Python. <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah, I mean the, this, this, this question of like how you find the human capital to do all of this stuff is really interesting. And I think that's what is, um, one of the things that's really pushing the hardware movement ahead right now, or at least, you know, the, the way that this community is approaching sort of hardware and connected devices and physical things as opposed to software is that so much of it is software. I mean, the, a lot of what you guys are working on in your OS is, uh, is that software problem of, you know, perception and, and, um, the mechanics of, navigation and stuff like that yeah i mean it, it it's all software like yeah. the, the the hardware you know in a pessimistic way you can think of the hardware as a necessary evil in some cases where yeah, you know, yeah, it yeah. needs to be there but you know all the the innovation and the expansion and the scalability all comes in with the software i mean that right you you need the hardware and then that's you know but but i, I mean making autopilot hardware is you know people have been able to do that for a while mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and you know there's commoditization and all that you know good stuff but the the, the software is, is where we you know we really think we're differentiating ourselves and that's and i, I think you know that's sort of the trend in, right, in, in right, silicon right. valley and elsewhere yeah um, is the, does this does your platform like have functions for connectivity like like all the time connectivity to the cloud or like, I would assume you probably have streaming video if you want to do expansion, but like, I mean, is there a component of your system, which, which has to be computed somewhere else or is everything completely self-contained within your uh, aircraft? Well, it depends. Um, w once the aircraft is flying, everything is completely self-contained because it has to be, this is one of, like one of the, one of the cool fundamental constraints of aerial robotics is that there, there's no physical connection to the mm -hmm. vehicle and so you know you have a data link but you know it's a radio link for any it can go down for any reason right yeah, yeah. um and so the the robot actually has to know what to do in in any situation it's on its own at that point uh -huh. um and so so during flight operations yeah it, it's it has to be completely self-contained um for sort of safety reasons what's the volume of, of a typical radio data link to a drone um it, it really it depends on whether it's a sort of serial or ip link um the the ip links can can be upwards you know 10 to 20 megabit um, okay. it really, it, there's a, depending yeah. on how much money you want to spend, you know, you, know, you can, you <laughs> yeah, can yeah. that, but I mean, you can, we can put 3G, 4G, um, M to M radios on, on the drone and, you know, you get really crazy throughput with those. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Do you foresee a day? I mean, is, uh, is, is connectivity becoming available at a great enough rate that you think that in a, in a few years could, could this model be different and, and more stuff happening in the cloud rather than on board the, the aircraft? Yes, absolutely. And I think that the the faster you can get the data you know to a place where it can be analyzed in mm -hmm. a more scalable way mm -hmm. then you know you're, you'll be better off and um so i think that i mean right now it's not a huge constraint yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to you know to to have the the data reside on the you know on the vehicle or you know, right, right, transfer right. a little more slowly but um but th that's definitely that's on on the way and, and i mean you see that with phones today there's sure. you know like uh i think that's how shazam works right they're not actually <laughs> they're not doing that on their you know the database does not reside on my phone right? <laughs> exactly. every song ever yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Right. yeah i mean uh, that's um generally speaking that that is the the core promise of the cloud that i think um gets kind of buried in more prosaic like we provide cloud solutions type um, of conversations that people have about the cloud carl bass pointed out last year um that uh you know for the first time since the cloud has become so prevalent um you know one second of 
computing time on a thousand computers costs the same as a thousand seconds of computing time on one computer. Right. And so now you can just like bring this enormous computing power to bear on anything. Um, and you can do it just about in real time. So very exciting. Yeah. And then there's lots of, you know, even for talking about sort of commercial drones, I mean, there's, there's tons of, you know, if I'm, if I'm surveying a field, right, I'm going to take 200 photos that are each, you know, 20 megapixels mm-hmm. and want to do some pretty serious computation to, you know, take those, do photogrammetry, generate a 3D elevation model, you know, find different indices. And, and so that, that's, mm-hmm. that's all very amenable to, you know, to cloud computation that can be, you know, pretty massively parallelized. So, so does that mean that, um, you know, Sometime in the future, a drone which is photo- capturing photographs like this and navigating around on on some sort of intelligent path could actually um, feed the images into a computation system and then have those images interpreted and have them inform the path of the drone in yeah. in real time. Yeah, and that's exactly. Oh um, my god! So <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. so we, we haven't we haven't released it yet, but one of the next things that you know we're working on right now is called the App Core, essentially a, a computer. Uh-huh. It's a Linux computer that that sits on the aircraft. Um, hmm. And so, you know, in the photo survey, for instance, you could take the photo and just evaluate it for fuzziness, right? Maybe mm-hmm. maybe the plane was banking right at the instant you took it. Um, and let's say, you know, it doesn't meet your threshold. You don't have to do the full analysis, but I just do this quick, you know, once over. Yeah. Um, and now you can go around and maybe circle back and take that leg again. And uh-huh. so uh-huh. there's one simple example of where, you know, there's there will definitely be real-time data analysis on the vehicle yeah, yeah. that will then inform its actual behavior. Wow. Oh, sweet. I do have one more question. That is, what is your favorite sub one hundred dollar consumer uh, remote control aircraft? Ooh, I well, this is going to be a cop out answer. I, I would build it myself. Yeah, yeah. Out of what parts? Uh, I'd I'd go to Spark Fun. I'd start there at least. Um, do, do you guys do you use Oshpark? Mm-hmm. Oshpark. So no. Oshpark, you can you can get super cheap circuit boards. So you make a circuit board, buy the parts from DigiKey, get it printed on Oshpark assemble it yourself and that will cost you less than a hundred dollars there's a few uh there's a few 3d printable files on thingiverse for some open source drone frames as well i think or quadcopter frames i think there's one called like the pixie or something like that i'm not sure i don't know i've got a hubson x4 and i had a good time with it after like lots of research on amazon and stuff but i was wondering no, another great way that. to make a quad rotor frame if you're you know sort of budget constrained if you can get carbon fiber mm-hmm. in, a, in a small enough plate and you have like a Zenbot or, a, you know, a router, That's a CNC router, machine, yeah. you can make it just a one piece frame that, you know, you can just directly attach your motors, motors to into. motors and just drop the circuit board right on there. That's a good idea. And they're really, really durable. Huh. Yeah. Well, so. who do you like for, for like a, a cheap autopilot? A cheap I, well, because I mean, like you got to have a TX and RX to control it, but also like with all the stuff, you know, just to just to hold position and stuff. Don't you want? Don't you want to get some kind of onboard computer for yeah, that? Yeah, I would just go open source on that. So mm-hmm. I mean, Paparazzi is great. Um, okay. You know, the, the Arduino Pilot's been around forever. Um, Pixhawk. You know, Pilot, Paparazzi, Pixhawk. Uh, Pixhawk yeah. is the 3D robotics one, right? That's well. Uh, Pixhawk was a project at uh, ETH Zurich, um, which is a research lab there, mm-hmm. and was, was sort of co-opted. Um, it's, a, it's a great, you know, sort of really great autopilot design. <laughs> came out of the research community, huh? Um, and so that's uh, so that's the the Pixhawk project was originally yeah. from from that university. And now it's an open source uh, project. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. been open source. Yeah, sweet, awesome. Buddy, thank you so much for stopping in. This has been absolutely terrific. No problem. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. If you liked this conversation, you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference. 
For more on the Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Craner. And I'm John Bruner.